Marley was dead to begin with. This is the opening line in Charles Dickens' enduring classic, A Christmas Carol. Published in 1843, it's likely a story that some of you are familiar with. There have been several movie remakes, the last of which was a 2009 digital affair with Jim Carrey that I didn't bother to watch. Uh, I prefer the version with George C. Scott stalking around gradually. Um, and Crystal left, it looks like, but there was also a Doctor Who one I saw that came out recently, um, which I know she would appreciate. But the storyline, oh, there she is. <laughs> the storyline, for those of you who don't know, centers around a Christmas Eve for a very crotchety old man, Ebenezer Scrooge, who's coming to grips with his life after being visited by three ghosts. Now, if you've read it, you might recall that Dickens separates the parts of the story into staves and not chapters. Stave two is the first of the three spirits. Stave three is the second of the three spirits. The three spirits, for those of you non-Dickens acolytes, are the ghosts of Christmas, past, present, and future. Now, a little bit about the word stave. It's not a word that we use very often today. It's a Middle English word. It has a few different uses, one of which is a stanza or a part of a poem, which is obviously how Dickens is using it. Uh, now, with the winter we've been having, most of you are likely asking yourselves, why are we talking about Christmas? Uh, contrast me, Nathan, with the guy on the square picketing the end of winter. Um, I'm the kind of person who will roll over on Tuesday morning and poke Victoria and say, do you know what day it is? And she'll annoy and half asleep look at me and not say anything. And I'll say, because it's the 25th, I'll say, Victoria, it's only nine months until Christmas. Uh, it's my favorite holiday, and I really do say that to her every month, and I think she really grows tired of it. Um, but I look forward to it all year round. Um, you know, I, I, I track along with it all year looking forward to it. Um, but so that isn't the reason that we're here to talk about uh, Dickens today, but rather um, the passage in Corinthians is a study in verb tense, past, present, and future, and it parallels the staves that Dickens has laid out. Um, look with me at verse 1 for a moment. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received. These are past tense verbs, preached and received. From there, in which you stand, so present tense, and then continuing in verse 2, and by which you are being saved, a nod both to the present and the future. Verses 3 through 5 are a deeper look at Christ's work in the past on the cross that the prophecies have been fulfilled. So stave 1, let's look at the gospel in the past. Paul's usage of past tense language in the scripture and his purpose for it here is to reiterate Christ's completed work on the cross. We see that the gospel work was completed in the past. Christ died and fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Verse 3, literally, that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Now before we address this idea of fulfillment, let's establish first what the gospel is. When I say gospel, I mean the good news. Um, I'm going through pastor school right now with a handful of other men in here. And Chris encouraged us in one of the first weeks to develop our own gospel definition, something that we can internalize and, uh, and use when we're speaking to others um, and, and to teach ourselves and to teach those around us, something that we can own and not just kind of be out in the ether aware of, oh, I know what the gospel is. So what I came up with was that the gospel is the great hope for mankind. It's the encapsulation of Christ's perfect life, necessary sacrificial death, 
and the beauty of the empty tomb contextualized over the world of pain, sadness, and death that man has built. It is good news because like a line dropped over from a rescue boat to a drowning man, we need only grab a hold and be saved. Christ came to fulfill the law and make a way for us to be made right with God. That's what Paul's driving at here with the idea of fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. A few examples of Old Testament prophecy for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with this. Genesis 12.3, that the Messiah would be from the line of Abraham. Isaiah 9.6, that the government would be on his shoulders. There are many more. These are just a few that come to mind quickly. But note here Paul's use of in accordance with the scriptures in this passage in Corinthians. He's clearly, clearly trying to get across the point here that something big has been accomplished here. Now how often do we stop and think about what this idea of fulfillment means or what it looks like? Maybe you're familiar with the idea Christ came to fulfill the law. You've grown up in church, have a, a good understanding of that. And maybe you can even point to a passage like the one in Isaiah. Or maybe this is your first time hearing any of this, and it's all very confusing and what is happening right now. Uh, and as some of you are likely aware, uh, because I tend to make it fairly plain, I had the great pleasure of studying engineering at a small school north of here that you may have heard of, uh, which we won't get into. Um, we beat you by 18, it's fine. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the things I internalized most there was how to learn from and process information visually. Engineers love graphs. Uh, and so, if you go to the next slide. Oh, this didn't turn out quite as well as I was hoping. What we're seeing here is a visual representation of the cross-references in the Bible. Um, so many times it's difficult to look at a list of these are all the different prophecies that were fulfilled and this is where. Um, but from a data visualization standpoint, we can see here um, the lines that start on the top and go across in a, in a convex arc um, are pointing to like an Old Testament reference that was looking forward. And the ones that go the other direction are a New Testament reference that is fulfilling something in the past. Um, and we can see clearly what a huge body of work the scripture is, that it is constantly referring to it itself and building it together and laying a case. Paul does so much of that in the New Testament. Um, and at least in my own life, it's so difficult sometimes to wrap my mind around that. But tools like this help us to step back and see that this is something huge that was happening. Paul is referencing that Christ came to complete all of what happened in the Old Testament. We see clearly here how much the Old Testament points the nation of Israel forward. Um, about three-quarters of the way, it shifts from blue to red, um, which is where the Old Testament references stop and the New Testament begins. Um, like Israel was waiting and looking so forward, and that's why you see all of those lines that are, uh, that are connected to the, the last part of the graph, which is the New Testament fulfillment. Um, and we also see how much the New Testament reaches back to make clear that it was accomplished. Here we see the encapsulation of all of that. This work of the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled plays out in three distinct facets too. Christ was died, buried, and resurrected. That's what Paul talks about in verses 3 through 5. Paul here was combating a pervasive mentality in Corinth and in the Roman Empire that physical resurrection was impossible. I think sometimes we don't necessarily wrestle with that idea as much because the gospel has penetrated our society very well. But Paul was writing specifically to address issues that were germane to these people, things that they were struggling with. Um, it's a letter. So Paul reminds the church at Corinth that he brought them the gospel. 
In verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Let's talk about reminders for a minute. We have all kinds of reminders now. Text from my wife asking me if I can stop by the store. I think I have about eight calendar meeting invites on my phone waiting for me. A couple of unlistened to voicemails. Uh, Things I like a little better. Victoria has a habit of leaving post-it notes on the mirror with a a note to me. And my personal favorite, and likely yours too, is bills. Um, Constant reminders of things that we need to be doing. And not necessarily requiring a lot of brain power on our part. Just enough to remind me, I need to do that. These are kind of surface-level reminders. What about ones that are a little more permanent? Maybe it's a picture on your desk with a beloved grandparent, or a bill in your wallet from a favorite trip abroad, or a drawing on your fridge that your daughter made. Uh, you go to the next slide. Oh, yeah, very good. Thank you. Um, this is a picture of my desk at work. Um, nuclear engineering coffee mug, stapler and tape dispenser, pretty normal stuff. The thing on the right, um, people come to my desk frequently to ask me a question or to chat about something, and they'll stop mid-sentence and ask, what is that, man? Um, When I was in graduate school, I worked in what's called an ultra-high vacuum lab, and uh, I did some research um, that involved a a photon source that hadn't been aligned, and I'm not going to go into further detail here. Suffice it to say, if you ever can't sleep, shoot me a note on the city, and I will write you a long reply, and... You won't have that problem anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, but so I've been tasked one summer with aligning this, uh, this photon source, and it's a kind of heavy piece of optical equipment. And I misunderstood what my lab director wanted uh, when he said align it. Uh, and so I got together with a couple of other graduate students, and we ended up dropping this thing. It weighs about 150 pounds, and it costs about $200,000, and... In a moment there, I was petrified that I'm never going to graduate. <laughs> um, and so we, we managed to, to fix it, but this, uh, this stainless steel uh, hose was the piece that connected it to, uh, to the greater apparatus, and this 200-pound device was hanging by this little hose. And uh, if, you look, if you can see closely, it's very mangled. Um, obviously, no useful uh, work will come out of it anymore, and I keep it on my desk as a reminder, when Victoria and I were in Birmingham, we went to uh, David Platt's church, the Church of Brook Hills, and one week from the pulpit, he got up and said that Jesus knows more about what's on your desk than you do, um, which I take to work uh, as an encouraging sign uh, that I need to keep learning and, and working hard. But also, very clearly in that moment, Jesus knew more about what I was doing than I did. <laughs> um, but I keep that as a reminder, especially at work, is the importance to remind myself about the understanding of what I'm doing. But I think there's a level deeper we can go, one more past these kind of broader reminders that, like, I see that and I'm reminded of it, but I'm not always thinking about it, like when I see a note on the, on the counter or something. This week, we celebrated Victoria's birthday, and we had my brother and his wife and another couple who were here also over for dinner and cake. Uh, we've been friends for a long time, and family for even longer, Jake. <laughs> uh, and, and we've celebrated quite a few birthdays together. And traditions get born this way. We ended up throwing a party that looks very much like the ones my parents have thrown for us for years. Uh, every time we get together, Mom makes the same cake and Dad will invariably grill something. And so that was what we did. In the best traditions of our families, the six of us got together and grilled some salmon and had some cake and had a great time. And at one point, 
Nathan and Lizzie and Jake and Heather were standing kind of a foot away from Victoria and I and listening to the kind of dull roar of the laughter and the dog running around. And I, I stopped for a minute and realized just what had happened to get Victoria and I back to Bloomington. The Lord had, had moved so many things into just the right order um, to make a way for us to come here. I was just overwhelmed with that. It was a, a much deeper level of reminder, one that really tugged at my heart and, and gave me pause for a moment to give thanks to the Lord for what he has done in our life. So what are some of those deeper reminders in your lives, the ones that tug at your heart and make you give pause like that? How have you seen his sovereignty at work in your life? We've been talking about that in Esther, that all of the things happened in just the right order for the king to be up late one night, couldn't sleep. None of these things were by accident, but rather the Lord's hand was orchestrating all of these things. Like Nathan taught on last week, how can we use those kinds of moments where we give pause to worship the Lord and to draw near to him? Look finally at verse 3. Paul also underscores that the gospel was brought to him. Literally, he writes, what I also received. Paul's indicating to us here that he is a faithful witness, merely Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, is saying, I haven't done anything new or particularly interesting here. I was just doing what was done to me. This ought to be an encouragement to us to make sure that we take the gospel with us. This is a very natural transition then to look at stage two, the gospel in the present. Paul's usage of present tense language in the passage and his purpose for it here is to encourage believers with the good news. We, as believers, are standing in the gospel today. Verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel in which you stand, paraphrasing. Where we are today is a product of that past, both our own, you know, literally getting in the car to drive here today is the reason that we got here, but also bigger things like life choices, who we married, where we went to school, what we studied, mistakes that we made, things that got, that got messed up along the way that we we regret and wish we could go back and do differently. Better yet, though, we're standing in Christ's past, mercifully, like we just looked at, and this work that was accomplished on the cross is our identity now. And for those of you who don't yet know Christ, the same is true. Where you have been has led you here today. It's not a coincidence that you're here this morning to hear the gospel, and we're very glad that you're here to join us. The verb tense here that Paul's using This language, in which you stand, is what is called a perfect active indicative. And it refers to a completed action in the past that has become a permanent state. Like the day that you graduate, you complete your degree, and now you have that. Something that was completed in the past is now your present state. You are a doctor or a lawyer. But what we're looking at here is, of course, Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. It is something that is completed and is now reckoned to us today that can't be taken away. Paul reminds the church and us of the gospel today. He takes time during the letter, after specifically addressing issues that they were wrestling with, like lawsuits and marriage, bigger ideas like gospel freedom and spiritual gifts, to shift gears and give them the gospel once again. Like Martin Luther says, we need to continually be beating it into our heads. Just as he told them the first time they heard it, he reminds them again of that truth of the gospel. Is there an imperative here for us? I think so. That we need to keep telling it. Just like the Israelites had God's law written on their hearts and their foreheads and on their door frames, we need to be reminding one another of you know, our spouses and our children and our friends 
what is the gospel? What is its relevance in our life today? How can I internalize this and take it with me and make sure that I remember that that's my identity and not my family or my job or whatever else? It reminds me of the imperative in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. A better translation here might be, as you are going, not merely just go. It's implied that you will be going places in your life. It's not just for missionaries in Africa, but rather for us here in town. As you go across town, take the gospel with you. As you go to work, as you go on vacation. And if you haven't called on Christ to save you yet, the imperative here for you is, what are you waiting for? What are your hang-ups? We need to claim Christ today. There is real-world ramifications of that. And that's why Paul reminds them of that truth, to make sure that they're constantly identifying with it and owning it and taking it wherever they go. So our present reality being found in Christ leads us very naturally then to stave three, the gospel in the future. Let's look finally here at Paul's use of future tense language in the passage and his purpose for it. Again, Paul is trying to encourage believers, rather this time, to wait expectantly for Christ's return. Paul writes in verse 2 that the gospel is saving us both today and in the future by saying, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel by which you are being saved. He's indicating here that the work is done, as we examined in gospel in the past. And still, obviously, pointing to the fact that this work is in the progress. Our our sanctification is ongoing. Points us back to gospel in the present. The Holy Spirit indwelling in us today continuing to, to break down our idols and draw us nearer to the Lord. This ultimately points to our hope of reunification with him. In verse 5, Paul makes mention of the fact that Christ appeared to Cephas in the twelve. What did Christ do when he appeared to the disciples after his resurrection? He told them he was coming again. He gave them hope of our great future with him in eternity. We looked at Esther 6 two weeks ago, talking about the story of Haman's demise at just the right time when, when Mordecai came into the picture and, and, and helped with the plot to kill the king. And the story of Haman's demise ultimately points to Christ's saving work, that the Israelites were not wiped out. They were saved in the end, just as Christ saves us. Like Chris talked about, all the sad things are coming untrue is, is our future hope with Christ. And so we're called to be waiting expectantly for that. Now, like Kate talked about, we've got a team returning from Brazil today. Uh, I was talking with Crystal Jones earlier in the week, and I asked her how she was doing with, with Chris being gone. And she, she stopped for a second, and she said, Matt, it's hard. Uh, she missed her partner. You could hear it in her voice. You could hear that she was tired of, of having to manage the kids on her own, and how she had gotten used to a routine of, of being with and doing life with Chris. And even just for a few days, it was strange for him to be gone. But you could hear it in her voice, the longing for Chris to return home, and you could see in her eyes that she was waiting expectantly for today, when she would be able to go up and, and pick him up and bring him home. What are we waiting expectantly for? Just like Israel in the Old Testament, waiting for the Messiah, but they missed it. They missed so many things because they got bogged down with false idols and, and a host of other things. What do we substitute there instead? What are we waiting expectantly for? Maybe it's to finish school or to find that first job or to find a better job. Uh, 
what are we making into idols there, into kingdoms in our own lives instead of, instead of building for Christ? Are we waiting instead, like Chris talks about, for the true and better king and his kingdom? Or are we busy building today for our own sake? The Fields family takes an annual trip to Indianapolis to see a stage production of A Christmas Carol every year in December. And we've been doing it for a number of years now, and they change bits of the stage production. The story is always the same, but little things change. And one of our favorite pastimes to get together at dinner afterwards and grass about, well, that line was different and I didn't like the guy that played Scrooge and all this kind of stuff that is irrelevant, <laughs> ultimately. But the end scene is always the same. It always ends with Scrooge waking up in his bed and exclaiming to a boy down on the street, what day is it? And the boy shouts back up to him, why, sir, it's Christmas Day. And Scrooge is, is overcome. He realizes that the spirits who visited him have taught him so much in the course of an evening and that he will strive to live in the spirit of the past and the present and the future. And it's a beautiful ending to a story here that really tugs at your heart, especially at the time of year at Christmas when we want to, to be giving of ourselves and to love one another. Um, but it's important that we don't stop there. Uh, one of the things Chris has been teaching us in, in Pastor School is that his sermon should be personal. You should get to know me a little bit as I'm teaching. And so I've shown you a love of literature. I like Dickens. And a little bit of my family upbringing things that we do together. One of my other passions is bourbon, uh, which uh, I'm not ashamed to get up here in front of you and tell you about. Um, it relates back to the word stave, though, which is why I bring it up. Bourbon is a chief American export that's defined by the Congress. Uh, it has to be a certain kind of alcohol that is aged in American oak casks or barrels. Uh, these barrels are just like they were made in the 1800s by a cooper, someone who, who very carefully planes the wood and, and bends it just so and then places the staves together to make the full barrel. Uh, this was back in the day before we had readily available you know, metal containers or plastics even. And so they were an integral part of society. To store and transport things, you had to have a host of coopers who made these barrels. I mean, this was their one job in life. It was a real craft and something that they took seriously. These barrels, though are made of many staves. These kind of curved pieces of wood, if you were to have one, you really couldn't get it to stand up on its own. Uh, very unlikely that it would stand individually. Um, and here we see clearly the analog, I think, the importance of the gospel in three staves. We can't strive to stand on our own. Only in Christ's work on the cross, the Spirit's work and indwelling in us to sanctify us while it is still called today, and the hope of his propitiatory work on the cross can we rightfully stand before a holy God? Paul encourages the church and us to remember and consider the gospel work in its entirety, past, present, and future. So remembering the gospel in the past, how do we find ways to be reminded of this? I think we do that through community, with other believers primarily. We do that here at Redeemer through community groups and fight clubs, through less programmatic things like me meeting Mike T. last week for a beer at Irish Lion. Uh, doing life together is like the sticky note and the stainless steel tube on my desk. Big picture things that help us cling to Christ. Time with other believers like this can't help but confront us with his grace and sovereignty in our lives. If we're doing it life truly together, we can't get rid of those effects. Studying the word is key too. I think, look at the end of verse 2. Paul makes clear the importance of remembering the gospel through study of and time spent in the Bible. 
if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, is linked directly to our being saved. Clearly, these things are important. This helps develop a full understanding of God and his character. Just like how the visualization of the Old and New Testament prophecies shows us a big picture. A complete picture of the Bible rather than just a handful of disparate scriptures that have nothing to do with one another. Here we can begin through time spent with other believers and time spent in the Word to harmonize these things and put together and begin to rest in the fullness of Christ. Remembering gospel in the present, we take to heart the imperative in Matthew 28 that we take the gospel with us wherever we go. We're on mission for Christ here in Bloomington, in Brazil, in Indianapolis, wherever we're going. At the barber and at the grocery store, who are you finding ways to, to make community with and to show Christ's love and light to? What is your purpose here? How is God using you? If you don't know Christ, how can we, how can we harmonize where your life is now and where Christ wants it to be? Claiming him and trusting ultimately in his sovereign purpose for your life will answer those questions. We do that by seeking out these answers through prayer and petition, I think, also, and trusting, like we talked about, in his sovereignty. Finally, remembering the gospel in the future, we wait expectantly for his return and acknowledge that everything we have here really is his. We aren't building kingdoms for our own sake, but rather trusting that he is the true and better king, as we've seen in Esther lately. Ask yourself, what kingdoms are you building? Are you finding self-worth and identity in your job or your mate or school, your accomplishments? Are you asking him to help tear down those idols rather than fix your eyes on him? We do well to consider this often, to be reminded of it together, and to trust ultimately on Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for a chance to gather together this morning to spend time in your word and in worship and in community, Lord. We thank you so much for how you have richly blessed this Redeemer community. For Chris and Crystal especially in their tireless efforts to shepherd us. For Nathan and his efforts to continue to draw us into your throne room. And just for raising us up as a community, Lord, who are committed to your gospel and to loving on Bloomington. We ask that you would impart these lessons to our hearts today, Lord, that we would be reminded of your gospel in its fullness, and take that with us as we go this day. We thank you most of all for Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.